As uh, Pastor Matt already mentioned, Pastor Mike has already departed for the, the conference this week, so we have uh, a friend of ours who has agreed to fill the pulpit for us this morning. Um, pastor Zach Dietrich is a pastor from Des Moines that I've really enjoyed getting to know over the past couple years. Uh, he and his family, his wife Leah, and four of their five children are here with us this morning. He is the pastor of theology and education at Soteria Church in Des Moines, and we're very thankful that they've agreed to, to come and help us out with this, with the, the last-minute changes of plans that we've had. Um, Pastor, Pastor Zach, uh, if the author of the study guide of this visual theology book, some of you went through this with me in our ABF class last fall. Uh, just to clarify, too, Pastor Zach is not a candidate. Uh, he's very graciously coming to help us out, uh, so don't ask him any inter interrogating questions. Uh, just benefit from his ministry of the word today. Zach? Thanks, Carol. Good morning from Des Moines. Thank you for giving me a chance to spend a little bit of time with you. I, as well, have enjoyed getting to know your staff. I have had a chance to go up to Junior Boys a few times and watch Matt do his thing up there, and he does such a great job, and I'm thankful for his ministry. I run into Kyle in the strangest places around the country. I just look over, and there's like, there's Kyle. So we talk for a few minutes and um, get a, to talk theology and ministry, and I, I'm thankful for him as well. And I've met Pastor Mike a few years ago, I'm not entirely sure when, in Chicago. I was at a conference, and he was there as well. And our staff, uh, we um, have a few pastors as well. We like we thought, we're in Chicago, let's go have fun. Um, it's, um, it's the evening, let's do something fun. I said, hey, Mike, do you want to come out uh, and go go uh, grab some appetizers with us? And he's like, oh no, it's like my bedtime already. Like, it's eight o'clock at night. <laughs> like, uh, so... So that was the first time I met him. It's always stuck with me and it made it all the more awkward and all the more special when I, last night I was asleep already and he texted me at almost 11. Um, and I thought like, wow, he must have set his alarm just to uh, wake up and text me. But um, I have enjoyed getting to know him as well and I'm thankful for the ministry. Uh, it is one of my um, passions and one of the desires even at my church or the church that I pastor at to work um, to work towards a greater camaraderie uh, with other churches and uh, to see that start, start first through prayer and to spend time as churches to pray for other churches so that on a Sunday morning as we gather, gather together we realize it's not just us that around Iowa and around the entire globe, there are people gathering in the name of Jesus Christ uh, to worship him and to learn more about him. So we want to pray for your ministry, and we hope that you pray for our ministry as well. So let's pray as we look into the word. Father, thank you for these few moments to look into your word. We pray for the churches that are gathering right now. We know that we're not alone, but you have called for your uh, own glory, uh, people from every tribe and every nation, and you're working um, out your plan of salvation around this globe. We, we pray for our brothers and sisters in places like India this morning uh, that face such different trials than us. And we pray for our church in Des Moines, for Soteria, that as they uh, gather under the word that they would be challenged um, even as it comes to missions today. And I pray for Pastor Mike, that he, as he's preparing for what I'm sure will be an emotionally exhausting week, that you would strengthen him. 
So, Father, we thank you for this time now as we look into your word. Open our eyes to see wondrous things out of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Kyle said, my title is Pastor of Theology and Education, and most people are, are trying to figure out what that is, because I'm, st- I'm still trying to figure out what that is a lot of times, too. It just means I teach a lot. I oversee our growth groups and all of our adult education. So as a teacher, I love to give quizzes, and I, if you come to one of my classes, I'm at some point get to, going to give you a quiz, and my goal isn't to make you feel like you don't know things, but to help you learn more, because you learn a lot by taking quizzes. So I have a quiz this morning, and you may be a little bit upset because you're a kid and you're thinking, it's summertime, I don't want to have to take quizzes, but we're going to brush you up a little bit. Uh, And then some of you haven't taken quizzes for years, and you have a lot of brushing up to do. So I I have three questions and one extra credit if you need it. So I have three questions, not a long quiz, we'll see how you do. The first question is this. What is the longest chapter in the Bible? Does anybody know what the long? Psalm 119. Now, if you're a really good quiz taker, you know that you use the test to take the test because sometimes the answer was somewhere on the page. You figure that one out. Yes, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. Now, I know that chapter divisions and verse divisions were added later, but no other chapter is even close to being as long. It is a lone redwood in a forest of maple trees. It would take longer for you to read through Psalm 119 than other entire books of the Bible. For example, uh, Psalm 119 is longer than the book of James, than the book of Ruth, than the book of Philippians, and many others. That means it's also the most joked about book or chapter of the Bible because as you get to that day in your Bible reading plan, you kind of have to psych yourself up for it and saying, okay, this is the long one. I can do this. I can make it through Psalm 119. And one author said, reading Psalm 119 is uh, too often like watching scenery along the interstate highway. You glimpsed a lot of things in the passing, but mostly you remember the long drive. So question number two. So we'll see if you guys can keep it up here. This is a little bit trickier. Um, I, I love theology, I love education, and I love literature. So we'll, what, is, what is the literary form of Psalm 119? Does anybody know what the, the literary form of this? There are different forms of, of uh, literature throughout Scripture. Does anybody know? Yeah, I heard a few people say. It is an acrostic. Psalm 119 uses the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And for each verses, for each letter, there are eight verses. So it begins Aleph, 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 Beit, 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 Beit. And, and for all 176 verses, it goes eight verses that start with Aleph, eight verses that start with Beit, eight verses that start with Gimel, all the way down to Tav. And that's both beautiful and frustrating. It's beautiful because it reminds us that the Bible is, that the God's Word is more than just facts. That God's Word is beautifully crafted and written for us, and we can take joy in that. But it's also frustrating because we can't tell what the order of it is. It'd be like me today if I said, I want to get to know everybody, and, the, and I said, why doesn't everybody stand up and reorder yourselves by the first letter of your first name? And we have all of the Adams and the Anns, and then somewhere in the middle, there's like this big family with a bunch of people that all start with J, and then we go to the other end, and there's just like two of us left, and our name starts with Z. And 
And you would look at that, and, you, and many people would look at that and say, what's the order there? I can see a little bit of connection, but it doesn't quite make sense because there's just verses and thoughts scattered all over the place. And Psalm 119 can be a little bit frustrating as we try to find the relationships between all of the different verses. So what is the, the relationship or what is the theme of Psalm 119? So do you know what, what this is? Yes, the Word of God. Psalm 119 is 176 verses on the importance of the Word of God. And we go through all of those verses, and nearly every one of them extols the value of God's Word. It is the greatest treasure. So I have one more question. It's an extra credit. See if you can get this one. How many different words are used to describe the Bible in Psalm 119. So the word Bible is not obviously not there, but how many words? Do you have any guesses on this one? It's somewhat interesting that in the same way that there are eight verses per each Hebrew letter of the alphabet, there are also eight different words that are used to describe the Bible. Words like testimonies, precepts, commandments, law, word, rules, and statutes. And of the 176 verses, nearly everyone speaks of God's word. But here's the thing. We can get all the trivia questions right, and we can impress our friends with our knowledge of the Bible, and we can ace the quiz on Psalm 119, but fail to grasp its message. Why do we fail to grasp the message when we get all the trivia questions right. And that's because Psalm 119 isn't just about Bible trivia. Psalm 119 is actually a prayer. We must remember that Psalm 119 is first and foremost a prayer. As one author said, it is the longest IU conversation in the entire Bible. The psalmist speaks to God. He pours out his soul. He doesn't merely talk about God. He doesn't merely talk about the Bible. He talks to God. And he talks to God about what makes him happy. And he talks to God about what makes him sad, what he is afraid of, and what's, what's scaring him. And yes, it's about the Word of God, but it's about the Bible, because the Bible is the means for his relationship with God. And not only is it a prayer, but more specifically, it is a lament. I don't know if you've ever read Psalm 119 and noticed that before, how much of Psalm 119 is filled with mourning and with fear. It's not first and foremost a chapter about Bible doctrine, inerrancy, inspiration, illumination. The psalmist instead pours out his soul to God and talks about the dangers he's in. Wicked people all around him afflict him and mock him for his faith. Verse 150, for example, says, They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. A few verses earlier, in verse 145, it says, With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord, save me. We're back all the way in verse 28. My heart melts for sorrow. And Psalm 119 is an example of a man crying and taking hold in the turmoil of his life, of the one thing that will hold him secure, his anchor, the Word of God. But more than a lament, interestingly, 
Psalm 119 is also a love poem. Verse 20 says, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Or verse 47, I find my delight in your comforts, which I love. And you could go through and see how many times the word delight occurs in this text. And it almost makes me feel uncomfortable. And it might make you feel uncomfortable how personal and how emotional the language is. He speaks of longing and joy and delight and love. I long for your rules, he says. And I think if we're honest, what makes us uncomfortable with Psalm 119 isn't the length of the chapter, 176 verses, or the Bible doctrine of inerrancy and inspiration and illumination. It's the deep love language that the author uses to describe the word. That kind of seems awkward to us. We don't speak that way. I don't know about you. I just don't speak that way very often. But even though it's awkward, I think we want that too. We want that kind of relationship with God, the kind of relationship that the psalmist has with God where, where there's no secrets, there's no, uh, nothing in between them, and he can speak openly at all times and have the words to say. Because isn't that, isn't that a joyful relationship with somebody else, Some, one where there's no secrets, when you can speak openly and honestly about what, you, what are you happy about and what you're afraid about? And so the reason... The reason Psalm 119 as a conversation is, the reason it's so emotional is because it's a a love poem about his relationship with God, a relationship that happens through the word. So this morning, the theme that I'd like to explore from Psalm 119 is this. When we treasure the word of God, we delight in our relationship with God. When we treasure, when we make the word our treasure, then We delight in our relationship with God. And the reason I say it like this, that is this. The goal of Psalm 119 isn't just to get you to read your Bible more. The goal of Psalm 119 isn't just to give you better Bible doctrine. The goal of Psalm 119 isn't just to get you to memorize more verses. The goal is to get you to delight and to grow your delight and joy in the relationship with God. And the way we do that is through his word. So what can hinder your relationship with God? What, what keeps you from having a close relationship with someone else? Perhaps you've heard, perhaps you have a friendship with somebody and you, at one point you were close in time, but now you look back and you've grown apart. This year is my 20-year reunion for high school graduation. I, I, I assume they're going to do something, but I haven't talked to anybody that I graduated from high school with for maybe 18 years, and it's just unintentional. So they, if they're having a, a party, I don't even know, they didn't even tell me uh, about it. Because over time, we just grow apart and priorities change. Uh, perhaps, perhaps it's just space and that space separates you and I don't even live near anybody that I went to school with anymore. But perhaps uh, there's something else in the midst of that relationship and the person that you ought to be the closest with is sitting right next to you, but they just as well be in Nebraska as close as you feel to them right now emotionally. So what's going on in the relationship there? I'll give you one word. In many cases, what comes into our relationships and what causes the problems, what hampers us on our relationship with God is sin. Sin breaks our fellowship with God. But how wonderful it is that God gives us everything we need to have a relationship with him. 
And so this morning, I just want to look at two of the most famous verses from Psalm 119 and show how treasuring the word creates delighting. So how does treasuring create delighting? Look at verse 11 with me, Psalm 119, 11, and it says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So how treasuring creates delighting when we store God's word and it protects us from sin. And perhaps you've learned it in another version, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So what does it mean to store? What does it mean to store up God's word? So one of the things that we're always doing in our house is we, uh, we like to clean out the extra garbage. We have a storage room in our, in our basement, and when I remodeled that, we've kind of built, this is the storage room where we've got totes and boxes and things like that, and we always have a goal every spring or sometime in the summer to clean out the storage room and to go through all the things that have a, a, we've acquired. Um, because my wife and I are both pitchers. My, my mom gave us a tote uh, recently, and it was full of all my childhood like memories and memorabilia, and, and she's like, this is yours now, and I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. We'll just so it's like that's a dangerous thing to give me stuff because it quickly makes its way to a dumpster. Um, and my wife is the same. So sometimes we're like, maybe we should have kept that. Um, but what what do we what do most people put in their storage room? Uh, in America, when we store things, it's because we don't really need them anymore, but we're too sentimental or greedy to get rid of them, right? Like that, that's why we store things. That's what a storage room is for, is for all the things that we don't really have a purpose for, but we don't have the guts to throw away. I have the guts to throw it away. Uh, but so is that what the Bible's talking about here? Like that, like the storage room where it's the, the picture frames, one final chance to survive in your household before it has to go off to Goodwill or to the consignment shop or to the garbage? No, that's not what it means by storage. So also in our storage room, we have a freezer, a deep freeze that we got a few years ago, and uh, that's full of the good stuff. Because once a year, once every couple of years, there's a farmer in our church and we buy a quarter of beef, and we fill it up with steaks and ribs and lots and lots of hamburger. And uh, just about this time of year, um, in, a, in a month when the sweet corn comes due, we go out and we pick it, and we come home and spend the night just kind of uh, storing up sweet corn. And to me, that's like liquid gold, having something to, to have throughout the year. Uh, I know that for some of you, my analogy might break down because you don't view steak and corn as uh, gold, but for me, I'm an Iowa boy, so that's what, it, that's what I love. When you store up the Word of God in your heart, it's not a storage room for unused junk. It is you're storing up the greatest treasure. More to be desired than gold or silver is the word of God. So where do you store it? Your word have I, have I stored up. I've treasured it in my heart. So last year I taught a class on the Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan's great work in the late 1600s. And it tracks the, the story, the, the allegory of a Christian throughout his life. And it's just always good to go through that again. Charles Spurgeon, uh, who read The Pilgrim's Progress over a hundred times in his lifetime, said this of John Bunyan. If you pricked John Bunyan, Spurgeon said, he would bleed bibline. That is, he was so filled with scripture. Anytime you heard him speak or anytime he wrote, it was just filled with Bible. 
In fact, as you read the Pilgrim's Progress, just over and over again, there, there are places where Scripture just spills off of the page. And one scene, just what struck me most, uh, one of these last times of reading, was when Christian is taken captive by giant despair, and he's with his friend Hopeful, and they end up in Doubting Castle, and they are there for nearly a week being beaten, despairing to the point of death. And at one point, Christian says this, What a fool I have been to lie like this in a stinking dungeon when I could have just as well walked free. In my chest pocket, I have a key called promise that will, I am thoroughly persuaded, unlock any, doubting, any door in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, That is good news, my good brother. Do immediately take it out of your chest pocket and try it. Then Christian took the key from his chest and began to try to unlock the dungeon dungeon door, and as he turned the key, the bolt unlocked and the door flew open with ease so that Christian and Hopeful immediately came out. Where did Christian keep that key called promise? And I hadn't noticed this before, but three times in this, this paragraph, it says he kept the key, the word of God, the promises of God in his chest pocket, close to his heart, like a necklace of a picture of someone that we love, keeping the promises near us. So somehow we take the word of God off of the page or out of the audio and we store it in our heart and we put it in our mind. Why? That we might not sin against God. A few years ago, I had a speaker preach on sin and uh, the Bible, and he said something like this. He said, don't expect that you will just be able to memorize a verse and somehow just get over sin or fight sin in your life. And when he said that, I, everything in me just rose up and said, but that's wrong because Psalm 119, 11 says, your word have I stored up in my heart that I might not sin against you. But I think I know he wasn't saying that scripture, memory, and sin are not connected. He was saying there's a right and a wrong way to, to do that. There's a, a wrong way that, that sometimes we can treat the word of God like a talisman, like a special token, like a, a necklace with a picture of a saint that will somehow protect us from, from suffering. We treat the Bible like garlic, just sprinkle a little bit of it and keep the vampires of sin away. Or use it like a silver bullet that just kills it, if, or like keeps the werewolves away. Was that how, how Scripture, we ought to use it to fight sin? No. The right way, the, the wrong way is as a talisman, but the right way is to treasure it, that we value it. Most of the time, I don't know about you, but if we just stopped you at any moment throughout the day and said, what are you thinking when your thoughts are in neutral and your mind is just idling, you are not thinking about God. And so when sin and temptation comes in, then the most natural thing is to believe the promise of sin more than the promise of God. So when we, what we do instead is meditate and memorize and learn the word of God so that we weigh the promises of God, the promises of his word, more than the promises of sin. So when sin comes and it says here, uh, this is the joy that I provide, we know instinctively already that the greater joy is found in God and our relationship with him. So how do we store it? How do we, how do we store God's word in order to protect ourselves from sin? Here, I, I fear uh, just using the Bible memory stick and discouraging you and telling you just memorize more. 
but let's just get real for a moment and, and think about how you think about Bible reading. Now, when you think about Bible reading and Bible memory, the first words that come to your mind probably aren't often delight, love, wondrous, longing, or how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth, as he says in verse 103. There are days when you attempt to read the Bible and it's nothing more than words on a page, like strolling through the names on a phone book. Um, but somehow we have to get the word from the page into our heart. So how? How do we do that? Just let, let, let Psalm 119 speak into that, what that looks like. So just three things as you seek to store the word of God in your life. First of all, pray for wonder. Look at verse 18 with me in Psalm 119. Verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things out of your law. We will not see God's word as a treasure without God's work in his life. It's only when he opens up our eyes that we see God's word as wondrous. So first, when we come to the word, we pray and we pray, Lord, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things out of your word. I want to see Jesus when I look at this, this page. And Lord, my eyes are dim and dull without you. And I'm praying now that you would help me see and how refreshing it is to know that we can't do this on our own. It is God who fuels our wonder. We can't do that on our own. You can't do that on your own. And that's the point. It takes God's work to help you love God. It takes God's work within your uh, life to help you grow in your relationship. And in the same way, we never work to earn our salvation and we could never be good enough to earn favor before God we see that we can never understand or delight in God's word without first his work within that us. And so we pray, we pray for wonder. Lord, open my eyes that I may say, see wondrous things. So why don't we see wonder? Too often, we don't treasure up and store it up because our hearts are already so full. Our storage rooms are already so full. Our freezers are already so full of worthless garbage. We've got so many other things that we are enamored with. And so look at verse 37. In verse 18, we pray for wonder, but verse 37, he says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. The mere fact of how many videos you liked on Facebook this week that are mindless and funny, and some of them are just frankly crude, proves uh, that we have plenty of time and we behold worthless things. And so we confess that. Lord, I confess that my phone doesn't need to be near me every second of the day. And so I said it, we need to set it aside so that we can treasure the word. And we confess the dumb excuses that we make when we come to the word or we come to study and memorize it. We say, too often we say, oh, I'm too busy or I'm too old or I don't have a good memory anymore. I can't, I can't do things like that. But God doesn't want you to give you a list of excuses. He wants you to confess those excuses as sin and then trust in his help. And every day when we reach for the Bible, that reaching is not an effort of our own abilities, but it is a declaration of how needy we truly are. Lord, I confess the worthless 
stupid things that waste my time and instead open my eyes to see the wonder of your word. You can't treasure the word apart from the work of God. Only God can take off the blinders from our eyes and open them to see the worth of who he really is. And then you store the word. Pray for wonder, confess what's worthless, and store the word. So I don't know what it takes. Do it while you're moving. Memorize with music. But die to your expectations of having it all be perfect in your life. Do it in the car. So this is my challenge and what I would ask you, Calvary Baptist of Mount Pleasant, to do. Demonstrate that God's word is a treasure that's value that surpasses any possession on earth by committing three minutes a day to scripture memory. So I don't, this is what it looks like for me. I wake up in the morning and I sit down and I'm working through 2 Corinthians right now and I read the same verse my review verse, 10 times out loud, just 10 times out loud. And I hope that someday what my kids think is probably weird and dumb and um, a little bit strange coming down and hearing just the same verse going over and over again out loud, that someday they'll see that there was a reason. And then 10 10 verses of a new verse and just one week. I'd only had a couple verses a week and then say that 10 times. And then I read the rest of the chapter. You know how long that took me? Three minutes to do that. Ten, ten verses of a, review, of a review, ten verses of a new, read the rest of the chapter. And you know what? By the end of the day, I forgot it. And so tomorrow, I'll do the same thing. Ten verses, ten verses, read the rest of the chapter. And what starts out as a labor on Monday becomes a delight and a sense of home and peace by the end of the week. And just imagine if you did that for throughout the year, how many psalms and entire books of the Bible that you could memorize just by simply valuing the Word of God for three minutes more than the other worthless things that we spend our time time on. And when we treasure the Word of God, we delight in our relationship with Him. Sin affects that relationship, but but, uh, it's not just sin that we need protected from, right? It's not just sin that's within our own heart that makes the relationship uh, with God hard and and it makes finding joy in it hard because there are so many other things, whether it's sickness or trials at work or difficult relationships, and all of them affect our ability to find delight in the Word of God. So what does the Word say to that? So let's look at the other famous verse from Psalm 119, and that's 105. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to to my feet and a light to my path. The second way that treasuring creates delighting is that following God's word guides our path. So this last week, one of my daughters was up at junior girls camp. The week before that, junior boys camp. And one of the nights at camp, one of the things that the kids get to do is they get to stay up later than everybody else, and they get to go on a night hike. Everybody else goes to bed, but get out your bug spray and get out your flashlight and walk around the campground. Is it, why do they do that? Because the best time to see the campground is at night? No, not at all. uh, Because it's just a lot of fun to spend time with your friends there. So what do you take? Why do you need a light? Because it's dark out, because you don't want to run in, you don't want to run into a branch, and you don't want to trip over a stump, 
And if you hear a really scary noise in the woods, you want to know where it is so you can run away from it, right? Have you ever been in your own neighborhood in a power outage? Uh, we had a, a big power outage in Des Moines from a, a major storm a few weeks ago. And I was home alone and I just got too dark and I was going to go to another part of town to grab something to eat. And I'm driving through town and here it is roads that I spend uh, hours on throughout the week that seem completely and utterly mysterious to me because of the power outage and no stoplights and streetlights. It's just creepy. It's like, it feels like a, a horror movie scene or something. It's just so strange. So why do we need light? For, or because it's dark. And the same is true of our spiritual lives. We can't see what's coming next. And the scripture often describes the Christian life as a, a journey. Not a journey that is uh, safe and on a, a flat plain, but a journey through hilly country and unsure footing. In verse 110, it says, The wicked have laid a snare for me. Another verse says, I am severely afflicted. Uh, all these things that are happening around me. So what do we need? We need a light and a lamp. So what's the guidance? Are they there for guidance? What's the guidance that the word provides? Well, we would like it to be a, um, uh, we would like the guidance to mean a map that unrolls for us the rest of our life so that we'll always know what's happening next. Even months and years from now, I'll get married and then I'll have kids and a successful career. And after that, I'll retire with grandkids and eventually die peacefully. And that's what we want. We want everything laid out for us, but no, the guidance is not a map that we can see everything in our life. It's a lamp at our feet, one step at a time. And it's not primarily about what choices we make, whether it's this job or this career or where to go out to eat. It's no, it's moral guidance, that it's spiritual guidance. Don't put your foot there. Watch out for that relationship. Don't go to that spot. It will cause you to fall into sin. And that's the, that's the guidance that it provides. So a few years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to go on a trip to Egypt. And while we were there one evening, we had a chance to hike one of the most famous, or a famous mountain there. And it's famous because it's known both for its potential religious significance, but also because it's known to have some of the greatest sunsets and sunrises in the entire world. But there was a problem. We only had a few hours to go on the hike and when we left, we left just after sunset on a six-hour round-trip hike up a mountain in Egypt, and it was completely dark the whole time. Like, we go out to see the sights, and literally we got to the top, and you couldn't even see a thing because it's pitch black in southern Egypt, and you're surrounded by nothing but Bedouins and camels, and that's all there was. But, and I, I thankfully I had packed a headlamp, so for six hours, up and down the mountain, all I did was stare at my feet to make sure I wouldn't trip off to the side where you could fall uh, untold feet to your death. Um, but, you, I, but even though I couldn't see a thing, and even though all I did was stare at rocks for hours, I had some of the most memorable conversations on that trip. Why? It's because the Word of God isn't just meant to give us moral guidance but it's also to bring us into, into delight in our relationship with God. 
And that's why I've been saying that Psalm 119 is about more than right doctrine. It's also about a relationship of delight. So where do I see the light in verse 105? I see it in a couple of places, and I want to show them to you. First of all, delight is found in the imagery of light itself. In the Bible, light is more than just information. We view light as God's guidance mechanically. Okay, God, do I go to the right or to the left? Do I choose A or B? Should I stay or should I go? Just give me the information and I'll make my decision. But light is so much more than information. Light is delight. Light is joy in the relationship. It's for me, when I think of that, I think of... um, my, a couple of my kids. I have two, I have five kids, but two daughters, twins, Lucy and Eliza. And they are just best buds all the time, four years old and make us smile all day long. And they work so well together. And Eliza is Hebrew for joy and Lucy is Latin for light. And those two working together is what I see in this, that light and joy uh, work together. So just so you know that I'm not making up uh, something in this verse, here's what a Hebrew scholar says in his commentary on this verse. The image of light in the Bible also has the connotation of joy and happiness in life. The guidance that God gives us is the guidance that keeps us in joy. And he keeps us from what will make us most miserable in the darkness Walking in light is more than just obedience. Walking in the light is a life of joy and blessing. And second of all, I see delight in what the final goal is. As the psalmist walks us up this mountain of of our relationship with God, where does he go? Uh, Look just a couple of verses down. He says in verse 11, your testimonies are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. And every time this path as leading us to a joy, greater joy in our relationship. We follow God. Uh, nothing can rob us of our relationship with him. They can rob us of money. They can rob us of a house and liberty and health, but they can't separate us from God. And the joy that the Bible provides is is the joy that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. It's a joy not just from a moral life or moral guidance. It's a joy of being in a right relationship with God. Pastor Mike just finished preaching on John 15, right? So John 15, that great chapter as Jesus is with his disciples near the end. And now we see how God leads us to, in his word, to the light of the world, to to Jesus Christ. And he leads us to the greatest treasure of the gospel. But just remember how Jesus' words, everything that Jesus taught in John 15, pushes even further what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. John 15, 7 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done. Does not abide mean that we have joy in the word of God? And when he says the words of God, is, could there be a more explicit promise regarding the need to meditate and memorize on God's word? And Jesus goes on to say, these things I have spoken, the word of God comes to us that your joy 
may be full, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The joy that the light of God's word leads us to is the joy of knowing and being known by him. So when we treasure the word of God, it brings delight in our relationship with him. How does it do that? By protecting us from sin when we store it in our heart. We pray for wonder and we confess what is worthless and we store the word. And when we follow God's word, not just as a a decision-making textbook, but as an overflow of our relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, again, we pray that you would open our eyes. Our eyes are dull and dim. Uh, Apart from you, we cannot see Christ. So open our eyes, and we confess again the worthless things. Father, some of them are trivial and unnecessary and just time wasters. And Father, some of the things are just downright sinful. So we confess them as sin and know that you forgive us of our sins. Father, this week, give this body a greater sense of joy as they look into your word, as they store it up in their hearts and use it by your spirit to convict them of sin and show them that it is a great treasure, greater than anything this world has to offer. I pray again for this, the, the, this body as they go now into their week. Uh, protect them and guide them. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.